But the passage this morning comes from Romans chapter 4, verses 16 through 17. And then we will do as our custom these last few months. We'll also read together uh, from Romans chapter 5, 1 through 5. If you are able, please stand for the reading of God's Word, Romans chapter 4, verses 16 through 17. That is why it depends on faith, in order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all His offspring. Not only to the adherent of the law, but also to the one who shares the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. As it is written, I have made you the father of many nations, in the presence of the God in whom he believed, who gives life to the dead, and calls into existence the things that do not exist. And now would you read with me? From Romans chapter 5, verses 1 through 5, it's printed in your bulletins. You could follow in your own Bibles, on your bookmark, or in the bulletin. Romans 5, 1 through 5. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through Him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. And we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame. Because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit, who has been given to us. Would you please be seated? Would you join me once more in a word of prayer? Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word to us. We thank you that you worked through your servant Paul to deliver these words. We thank you that they have been preserved for us by your Holy Spirit. Now we ask this morning that as we look at your word, which is living and active, would you have your will among your people? Would you work out these things within us? Would you move us to confession, uh, confessing of our sins? Would you cause us to cast our hope and our faith upon Jesus Christ? And would you, O oh Lord God, sanctify your people? Make us more and more like your Son. And we ask that you would do all of this for your glory, and for our good. It is in your name we ask all of these things. Amen. This morning, as we begin looking at Romans chapter 4, verses 16 and 17, I want to begin with just a little story. I don't remember my children when they were younger, I don't remember them ever having eating problems, being picky about the things that they eat. And I don't think that's because They weren't picky. I think it's just because enough time has passed that I've forgotten. Uh, And yet with uh, many of our younger foster children who come into our home, we always encounter these battles of the foods that they like and the foods they don't like. And often the foods they don't like are the very foods that they need to eat. And so we're, like many parents, I'm sure, we're often navigating how do we get them to eat the food they don't want to eat. Well, we've developed this sort of uh, psychological game in our home 
that helps us in the process. And what we do is we typically will take the food they don't want to eat and we'll put it on our own forks. Let's say it's broccoli. We'll put it on our fork. We'll kind of turn our head away and we'll say, don't eat my broccoli. Just don't eat my broccoli. Make sure you don't eat my broccoli. And uh, inevitably, reach it out towards them. They'll kind of snatch it off the fork and we'll go to eat the broccoli and it'll be gone. We'll act surprised. And that works about 40% of the time uh, to get them to eat their vegetables, okay? And one of the, that's the good thing about it. The, as I've been looking at this, these uh, verses in Romans 4 this past week, I'm thinking it also is a helpful commentary on human nature. It, it really is. Last week in Romans 4, uh, 14 and 15, those verses, the Apostle Paul said, apart from the law, there is no transgression. And before that, and then later on in this book, he will work that out in such a way that we will realize that with the giving of the law, it actually will provoke the sinful heart to be more inclined to sin or to desire it more. It's kind of strange how that works. So much so that you stick a fork of broccoli in front of a four-year-old's face and you tell them to eat it, they want nothing to do with it. It's the worst thing in the world. But if you say to them, don't eat my broccoli. That's my broccoli. Don't eat it. The only desire of their heart is to eat the broccoli. It's amazing how that works, isn't it? Okay? So Paul tells us that the law actually will work in such a way that when brought into contact with the sinful heart, the very thing the law says do not do is the thing that we want to do. We have an, a desire for it. And when the law says that we should do something, we actually are less inclined to do that very thing. It's a problem of the fallen, sinful nature of the human heart. And so the Apostle Paul added last week, not only is the law insufficient to save us because we cannot live perfectly according to the law, but also the law is insufficient because it doesn't woo us or draw us towards holiness and righteousness. It doesn't do that. As a matter of fact, more often than not, it makes us desire the very opposite thing. Okay? And so Paul this morning will return in verses 16 and 17 back to a conversation on faith. He will say, again, the law is insufficient. The law cannot do this for you. The law in, in contact with the broken human heart will not justify you. It will not make you to desire the things of God. Therefore, it rests upon faith. And the question that Paul wrestles with this morning about faith is very simply this. Why has God chosen faith? Of all the things that God could choose, why did he choose faith to justify his people? You think about it. It will be obvious this morning as we work through this passage, faith is so simple. It's so basic. It requires literally nothing of us. A child can do it. Why did God choose faith? Faith to justify his people. And faith alone. It's the question that Paul's asking this morning. It's why he says that is why it depends upon faith. And he will give us some of the reasons why God makes it by faith and faith alone. Okay, so this is what we're doing this morning. Why are the reasons it depends upon faith? First one that Paul gives. Depends upon faith in order that the promise may rest upon grace. Okay, that's the first reason. God makes salvation by faith so that it might rest upon grace. 
Now, you might not see that connection, but it's a very important connection Paul's been making uh, throughout the entire book, okay? And that is that our faith is intimately connected with the grace of God, okay? These two things must be married together. They cannot be divided out because one is contingent upon the other. Paul is essentially making the argument that God has designed salvation to be received by such a simple thing as faith so that we might know that it is by the grace of God. We cannot confuse it. It is so simple. We cannot confuse the fact that this is from a gracious God, not contingent upon our works at all. I love the word here. It says it may rest upon. It's a Greek uh, adjective that's often translated as with. The the text literally says uh, that it depends on faith in order that the promise will be with grace. Okay? Uh, But to say that it rests upon is a very good translation of the idea of what is being written there by the Apostle Paul. He's saying these two things go together. They're intimately connected. They cannot be divided. One is based upon the other. If it is by faith, then it must be that it is by the grace of God. And so first, the Apostle Paul will say, we receive salvation from God by faith because it must be based upon His grace. This, when you look at it in this way, cannot be mistaken. It will not be confused that this is from a gracious God. Now, Why does God save us by grace? I mean, why does he do that, honestly? If it is because of his grace, if it is received by faith, if these two things are married together, so intimately connected, then then why does God desire to save us by his sheer grace? To answer that question, we're going to see it in the rest of Romans, but to answer it, I'll give you a little story I think will help to elaborate the salvation that we receive by grace through faith. I've got this uncle and aunt who have done very well for themselves in their lives. They were successful in their careers. They earned lots of money. And about maybe 10 years ago, they bought this second home in California. And it's just outside of Monterey Bay. It's a very beautiful estate. And I say estate intentionally. It really is an estate. 13 acres, a private tennis court, pools with water slides. I mean, it is absolutely amazing. And when they bought it, They said to us, they said, you're welcome whenever you want. Come out and enjoy it, okay? So what we did was we ended up, we go, our family goes about every other summer, all right? And we go out there and we enjoy our time. It's absolutely amazing. And, And not only is it just one of the most spectacular places I've ever seen, but when we go there, they treat us like royalty, okay? They, they make the fancy meals for us, and they um, serve fancy drinks, and they take us out to their favorite places, and, and, uh, and they just kind of pull out all the stops to make it the most amazing week that we have. And by the end of the week, when we get to the, the very last day, my children are literally counting down the days till two years from now, when we'll go back again. So 755 days till we come back to California. Okay. It's absolutely amazing time for us. Can you imagine... At the end of a week like that, if I said to my uncle and aunt, I said, man, this has been the greatest week of our whole year, and you know what? I want to pay you for this. And I kind of reached into my wallet, and I said, I've got a $5 bill. Let me pay you for the week that we just had. And we'll call it even, okay? You did for me, and I do for you. Can you imagine, first of all, how insulting that would be? It would be terribly insulting, uh, the, the, the compensation I've offered doesn't nearly compare to the gift and the intentions of the giver, does it? I, I was thinking about that this morning. Whenever we're there, we talk about the price of water. 
It's like $2 a gallon. So the $5 I could offer is enough for one flush of the toilet. That's the compensation I could offer. Okay? You see, this is the very thing that the Apostle Paul is highlighting when he speaks about the grace of God because here it is. The Lord God works out the most wonderful, absolutely amazing thing that we could imagine in our lives the salvation that we receive through Christ Jesus for eternity that reconciles us to God, lifts us up in adoptions as sons and daughters, and makes us to be co-heirs with Jesus Christ. And when we think that it is by our works, our obedience, by anything we do, according to the law, we insult the giver because we have nothing to give. We really do. And in the very same way, we diminish the thing that God has done for us And so the Apostle Paul will say, listen, you must be clear about the fact that you've received this by by faith, and it is by faith in order that the promise may rest, may be settled upon, may be only contingent upon the grace of God. That you might realize that this is the benevolence of a good God. And just like my uncle and aunt want to be able to finish the week and say, hey, this is just because we want to be a blessing to you. You don't got to pay us for this. You, you couldn't pay us for this, okay? So the Lord God desires to shower his grace upon his children, upon the ones that he loves, and he, he desires to make it clear that this is by his grace. That is so that his children who recognize the gift that has been given, that his children might say, well, I just want to love and adore that type of God. I want to praise Him. I want to glorify Him. I want to thank Him. I have gratitude in my heart. I'm so warmed. I'm so excited about it. My only desire is to worship, honor, and praise Him. That's why God has designed it to be through faith, by His grace, not by our works. Listen, if you are the type of person who says, I struggle with God, I feel like he's a, He is a, a, a ruler, a, a despot, a hard a hard uh, inflictor of punishment. You haven't seen the grace of God and the gifts that He gives. You haven't really comprehended the graciousness of the living God who saves us not by our work, but simply because He desires to give us His grace. Okay? That's the first point. Paul says, Uh, The salvation we receive depends upon faith in order that the promise may rest upon grace. Here's the second point. Uh, It depends upon faith in order that the promise may rest upon grace and that it may be guaranteed to all of his offspring. That it may be guaranteed to all his offspring. This word right here, uh, guaranteed, is is a really important word. It is the Greek word bebion. Bebion, and it literally is the word that means to walk on solid ground, okay? To walk on solid ground. And here's what it means. In this context, it's a word that means to be solid, to be firm, to be sure, not to be wavering or moving. And so, again, the word guaranteed is a very good word to capture the meaning that that Paul is spelling out here. It depends upon faith so that the promise might be guaranteed to all of the offspring of Abraham. Now listen, I'm not sure if you've thought about uh, why this is the case and why it is necessary to be dependent upon faith for all the offspring of Abraham, but let me give you a little scenario 
uh, that you might consider in thinking through the offspring of Abraham. God promised Abraham, you remember this from last week, he promised him that he would have many descendants. That was Genesis 12 and 13 and 15. And in Genesis 17, he kind of takes this one step further. Not only Abraham will you have many descendants, but you will be the father of many nations. You remember that? The father of many nations. He actually, Paul quotes it here in verse 17, okay? You'll be the father of many nations. Now, that presents a sort of conundrum. Okay, and the conundrum goes like this. If you believe that, that uh, men and women are justified by obedience to the law and to the celebration of the sacraments and through the word of the prophets and, the, and their works, if you believe that to be true, then you have a problem because God has made a promise to Abraham as the father of many nations, but guess what? Many nations don't have those things, okay? Israel has the law and the prophets and the signs and uh, the various uh, things that God has given them, but the nations do not have those things, Okay? The nations, the Gentile nations, they do not have the law. They do not have the sacraments. They do not have the prophets. They do not have those things. And so if Abraham is to be the father of promise to many nations, but they do not have those things, there's a really important question. How will they be saved? How will they be justified? And so the Apostle Paul says this. It is why it depends upon faith. Okay? That the promise would be guaranteed to all of Abraham's offspring. You see what Paul's saying? It is only by faith, and that is so that the promise that God made to Abraham to be the father of many nations, that they would be the recipients of the promise, it is so that those people who do not have the law and do not have the prophets and do not have the sacraments, those Gentiles might also be heirs of the promise. That's pretty significant. And that has a lot of important meaning for you and I, many of us from Gentile backgrounds, okay? And, and listen, isn't this so beautiful? You think about the nature of faith. I mentioned earlier that faith is simple. It's basic. A child can do it. But one thing we've realized here, very significant, faith transcends cultural bounds, doesn't it? Right? So the law and the prophets and the sacraments, these things don't sort of transcend to other groups of people, but faith does. Right? You don't have to be a particular language to have faith. Uh, a Russian may have faith. A Chinese person may have faith. A African person may have faith. A American may have faith. The South American may have faith. And not only that, but from all times and all places. So that a person walking around in Paul's day may have faith in the Lord God, just as we may have faith in the Lord God, just as a child may have faith in the Lord God. Not only that, but think about this, uh, people with mental disabilities, that they may have faith as well. So that it might not be said that, well, look, are they doing the work that is necessary to be saved? Are they, are they capable of doing the things that they need to do to be saved? But simply that they might trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. The Apostle Paul says, it is so the promise may be true to all the descendants of Abraham from all nations and all tribes and all tongues, just as John will say in Revelation. The, the multitude of people that no eye could number, that it might be true that all of those people might be recipients of the promise. So it is that we receive salvation through the most simplest of means. Through faith. Isn't that absolutely amazing? So that the promise might be true and the one who promises also might be true. So that he might be found trustworthy. 
Okay, that's the second thing. Here's the last thing. And it's very simple. You look at the end of uh, verse 17. Uh, in verse 17, there's a quote there from Abraham, or sorry, from God to Abraham. I've made you the father of many nations in the presence of the God in whom he believed. Now listen to the description of God for a second. And I want you to think, why does Paul use that description? This is the God who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. Why would Paul use that description? He could say the God who is merciful and the God who is long-suffering and the God who forgives and the God who gave a son. And you could think of all the ways he could describe God. But he says this, the God who gives life to the dead, the God who calls into existence the things that do not exist. You see, I, I think it is because the conversation has been so focused on Abraham. There's an intimate connection between Abraham and this promise received by faith. Now the description that Paul gives intimately ties us to Abraham. Okay, you see, because what happens is when most people think about Abraham, the inclination at least of many people is to think of Abraham as the one who was obedient and who did many works and obeyed God and to him it was counted as righteousness. And one of the paramount examples of that is when Abraham goes on the mountain with his son Isaac, okay? And many people recount that, that story and they remember what Abraham did and they think, well, look at that. That is a man who was obedient to God. Did what God commanded him, even if it was going to cost him his own son. Look at the obedience of Abraham. But you know what? That's not what was happening on the mountain. That is a total misunderstanding of the, the act that Abraham was doing when he took his son Isaac up on the mountain. And you know how I know that? The writer of Hebrews tells us that in Hebrews 11. Okay, so if you have your Bibles, turn to Hebrews 11. Beginning in verse 17. And here's what the writer of Hebrews says about Abraham's offering his son Isaac. Okay? Hebrews 11 beginning in verse 17. By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. And he who had received the promises was in the act of offering up his only son, of whom it is said, through Isaac shall your offspring be named. Now just stop there for a second. You read that and you say, yeah, look at that. He's doing what God commanded him. That lends itself to obedience. I know the word faith is in there. It lends itself to obedience. It's a, it's a work. It's a thing he's doing in obedience to God. But you would have forgotten what verse 19 says. He, that is Abraham, considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead. From which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. See what the writer of Hebrews is saying? You want to talk about what's going on in Abraham's heart when he takes his son Isaac up on the mountain? Abraham wasn't thinking, I'm doing this in obedience to God and I don't care about my son. I'm just going to do it because I'm obeying God. You know what he was thinking? God made me a promise. That through Isaac, my son, my only son, would come many descendants, many nations. And God made me that promise and I believe in faith that he will do it. And if I have to go up on this mountain and sacrifice my son, I trust that God will raise him from the dead if necessary. That he will bring into existence the things that do not exist. He believed by faith that the one who promised was trustworthy, 
that he would do it, and he simply went forward trusting in faith. This is what Paul means when he speaks about faith. It depends upon faith. In the example of Abraham, it depends upon faith because faith is not about the person who has faith. It is about the object of our faith. And Abraham's faith was simply saying this, I believe that that God will do what he has said he will do. And so Abraham went on the mountain trusting that if necessary, God would raise Isaac from the dead. Here's the beautiful thing for you and I. Not only does God work that way for Abraham, it's the same exact way that he works among us. Right? When we trust him by faith, the word of God says we were once dead in our sins. And you may not have felt dead You may not have realized that you were dead, but the reality of the matter is that you were dead. You were dead. And then when trusting by faith through the gift of God, God raises us in new life in Christ Jesus. He resurrects us. He gives us a new heart. He regenerates us. And He causes us to be living beings, new creatures, No longer dead to sin and in our trespasses. No longer without life, but he gives new life. The beautiful thing about that is that as we trust him by faith, we realize it's not about our faith, it is about the object of our faith. He is the God who gives new life. He is the God who causes things that do not exist to come into existence. And it's simply that we we trust him by faith. That's the wonderful, beautiful thing about faith, the vehicle by which we receive the salvation by the grace of God. It is that our God is a great, wonderful, awesome, and mighty God. He is the one who was and is and is to come. He is the creator and the sustainer of life, the alpha and the omega. He is the God who is sovereign over all creation, omnipotent, omnipresent. He is the one who loved us so much to give his only son, who wrote the story of redemption from before the foundation of the world, who gave us new life, who raises us from the dead and sustains us to the end, and now has desired to save us that we might spend eternity with him. Amen. That's the one we have faith in. That's why it depends upon faith. In order that the promise may, be, may rest upon grace and be guaranteed to all of his offspring, that's you and I. Amen. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for your son, Jesus Christ. We thank you that you have saved us. And we ask this morning that you, O oh Lord God, would continue your work among your people. Would you, by your Spirit, work to grow our faith in you? Would you, by your Spirit, cause us to see that our best works can do nothing to earn your favor, can do nothing to secure our salvation, can do nothing to change the way that you see us? Would you help us, O Lord God, to depend only upon your grace? You are a gracious God. 
And when we see that, may we be moved to thanksgiving. May we thank you and honor you and glorify you. Through your Son, Christ Jesus, we ask all of this. Amen.